11 years old, my parents got divorced. My father brought my sister and me home early from a weekend fishing trip, only to discover my mother lying supine on the kitchen floor, her bare legs wrapped around the waist of the repairman sent to fix our garbage disposal, the various metal instruments of his handiwork strewn across the shining linoleum, thrown from his tool belt in the heat of passion. My father picked up a pipe wrench and chased the bewildered mechanic out of the house and into the yard, landing the occasional blow on his naked shoulders. He dove into his company car and peeled out of our driveway, narrowly missing a passing ice cream truck whose infectious rendition of Pop Goes the Weasel reverberated off the aluminum siding of the neighborhood homes. My mother clothed herself and ran to my father, begging forgiveness between choked blubbering sobs, but he pushed her aside and strode into the kitchen, stoic and silent. He stepped over the lover's minefield of Phillips-head screwdrivers and needle-nose pliers, and with a quivering hand flicked on the switch to the garbage disposal. It ran like a dream. While my parents worked out the finer points of the divorce with their lawyers, My 14-year-old sister Jane and I lived with our mother at her sister's house, since my father was too emotionally distraught to take care of us. On Sundays, we would visit him for the afternoon, and he would sit motionless in front of the TV, permanently glued to the Discovery Channel, his eyes glazing over as a pack of hyenas tore apart an antelope. After the divorce was finalized, my mother moved in with her doubles tennis partner, personal injury attorney named Skip. I once overheard my mother tell a friend that Skip was hung like a Budweiser Clydesdale, and though I wasn't sure what this meant, it sounded impressive. Until I actually met him, I imagined Skip with blinders and a bit, pulling a sled through the picturesque snow-covered valleys of Vermont, or perhaps New Hampshire. My father recovered to some extent and was granted joint custody but he still grappled with the aftershocks of my mother's betrayal. He was moody and reclusive, donning a cheap wig and sunglasses when he attended my soccer games or Jane's piano recitals, afraid of showing his face in public. If anyone spoke to him, he grunted a few words in a language vaguely resembling Arabic and shrugged his shoulders, and though his disguise fooled no one, he was graciously allowed the courtesy of grieving in his special way. My sister, in an attempt to bolster our father's spirits, secretly placed a personals ad in the local paper with my father's phone number, 
hoping the calls of interested women would snap him out of despondency. Unfortunately, whenever someone responded to the ad, my father was convinced they were trying to sell him something, and he would tell them he was reporting them to the Federal Trade Commission and angrily hang up the phone. My sister tried setting up our father with the single mothers of her friends, her piano teacher, and our school's cafeteria ladies, but her efforts were always thwarted by his antisocial behavior. When the young Vietnamese woman who served the tapioca and the tater tots came to our house for dinner, our father appeared at the table with his face caked in mud, looking like the creature from the Black Lagoon. He asked her point-blank if she had ever been aroused by a repairman, and she grabbed her purse and left. My father shrugged his shoulders and helped himself to her portion of beef brisket, his mud-covered jowls flapping with every bite. At first, our father found my sister's matchmaking amusing, a whimsical game, but by the time the fifth single mother had doused him with her beverage and the last of the cafeteria staff had stormed out of our house in tears, he sank into a deep depression. He became convinced he would never again love a human being. He would never be able to subject himself to the cruelty of his species. And so, he ordered a marital robot. The marital robot was the invention of a Japanese electronics company called Hikaruko and was one of the hottest consumer products of the year. According to Hikaruko's extensive advertising campaign, the robot, called a Fujibot, was supposed to perform all marital functions, and the TV commercials showed men and women cooking with their robot, shopping with their robot, even crawling into bed with their robot. One memorable ad, debuted during halftime of the Super Bowl, featured a towel-clad Richard Dreyfus joining his robot in the shower, grinning as he pulled the curtain in front of the camera. In the ad geared towards heterosexual women, country-western legend Loretta Lynn caressed her robot and said, Tired of waiting for a real man? Get yourself a Fujibot. Following the overwhelming success of the Fujibot, other companies rushed to cash in on the craze, offering such products as the Travelbot, which could be easily folded up and stowed in an airplane's overhead bin, thereby preventing the purchase of an extra ticket when traveling with a spouse. My father ordered the Yokanobot, a cheap ripoff of the Fujibot available both as a prefabricated model and a do-it-yourself kit, and as he considered himself something of a handyman, he opted for the latter. A firm believer in the DIY aesthetic, he had actually meant to fix our garbage disposal himself, but when he put it off for several months, my mother called a repairman against his wishes. The resulting kitchen floor tryst only solidified my father's belief that the service industry was an unnecessary evil. As my father patiently waited for the Econobot to arrive, my sister Jane launched a campaign of venomous tirades against her mother fueled by the emotional upheaval of the divorce and the natural trauma of adolescence. After a particularly violent argument, she refused to sleep at Skip's house and began staying overnight with her best friend Isabel. When my sister and I slept at our father's house, Isabel would often reciprocate, biking over after dinner time and cuddling up with Jane beneath her down comforter, a security blanket for the long, fractured nights. The first time Isabel came over, 
I opened the door to discover her waiting on the porch with a bright pink duffel bag and semi-sheer capri pajamas. A curious sensation radiated through my extremities and lower abdomen, and my right arm involuntarily twitched at an irregular frequency, flopping against my side like a harpooned marlin. This unusual reaction was so foreign and unexpected, I was convinced I was dying, so I slammed the door shut and staggered to the telephone to dial 911. By the time I reached the phone, however, the shaking had subsided and my body returned to normal. Though the pulse of my racing heart was so loud, I didn't hear the doorbell ringing endlessly in the other room. My sister eventually let Isabel in, and as I watched her race up the stairs in her cotton boil underclothes, the shakes briefly returned, causing me to spill the bottle of vitamins I hoped would cure my strange affliction. Though I got along better with my mother than Jane, I still felt uncomfortable with her new boyfriend Skip, and dreaded the part of the week I spent at his house. In the evenings and weekends, he would take my mother, Jane, and me to play doubles tennis, a sport I played as skillfully as a mountain gorilla with a wooden racket. When my sister stopped coming, Skip took on my mother and me by himself, and whenever he was losing, he would aim his shots at my stomach, knowing I'd get scared and jump out of the way. No wusses in tennis, he would say, shaking his titanium racket at me. Add in. Set point. During set breaks, Skip would head for the Gatorade machine, and I'd hug my mother and start to cry. She'd console me and say that Skip wasn't being mean, he just wanted to make sure I grew up tough, a man's man, unlike my father, who spent his free time playing with model trains and erector sets. I still remember the look on her face the day FedEx delivered the marital robot, and she arrived at my father's house to find him buried in a mound of metal parts, intently studying an obscenely thick instruction manual. The Yukonobot Silver Edition, it said, in both English and Japanese, how to build a better spouse. two weeks, my father completed construction on the marital robot and invited Jane and me over to meet it. My mother and Skip were also invited, but they declined, vaguely referencing a charity tennis tournament they had to prepare for. The robot was very impressive looking, with shiny stainless steel parts such as a can opener and a bicycle pump jutting from its four foot tall rolled steel body, which also doubled as a working gumball machine. It had a single pneumatic arm protruding from the canister and was outfitted with track wheels, enabling it to putter around the room at its leisure. The box claimed it was just like a real spouse, 
but its strange behavior bore little resemblance to my mother's, and I couldn't help but think my father had been swindled. There are still some kinks to work out, he said, as the robot fell down the basement stairs, crashing against the floor with a colorful explosion of pastel gumballs. Though the Merildor robot was advertised as being gracefully mobile, it had severe difficulties with stairs, so when we took it somewhere without a handicap accessible ramp, we would have to find a few strong adults to help us carry it to level ground. It was also supposed to understand human speech, but could not speak itself, since that feature was only available in the more expensive Gold Edition. So it was difficult to tell if the robot was unable to obey my father's commands, or simply unwilling. Whenever I arrived at my father's house after soccer practice, he would be on the phone with a representative from customer service, asking them how to get the robot to do the laundry, or pay the cable bill, or give him a hand job. The Meridor robot showed no discernible interest in my father, but it took a liking to the kitchen appliances, spending countless hours playing with the blender, the salad shooter, and the ice cream maker. My father, worried this attraction would blossom into a full-blown affair, locked all of the appliances with heavy kryptonite chains in the cupboards and forbade the robot from ever using them. However, late at night, when my father was asleep, I would awake to a distant rumbling from the kitchen, and if I cared to silently creep down the stairs and peer through the banister poles, I would see the robot, flicking the garbage disposal off and on, off and on, slowly at first, delicately, but then more forcefully and rapidly until its pneumatic arm was a blur, its gumball machine body quivering with excitement, the roar of the garbage disposal rattling the fine china in deep bass ecstasy. During this time, my sister's friend Isabel continued to sleep at my father's house, and my strange health problems worsened. When she appeared at our door fresh from a dance recital in a skin-tight leopard print leotard, my tremors were so severe I had to stumble into the garage and steady my shaking arm in my father's vice grip, leaving it clamped in the steel jaws for over an hour. I tried several brands of multivitamins, calcium tablets, antioxidants, and fruit-flavored nutritional supplements, but nothing staved off the violent, incapacitating seizures. Still, even with the inconvenience of losing control of my motor functions and spending an hour in our musty garage, I always looked forward to seeing Isabel, though I wasn't sure why. My father, meanwhile, was dealing with the closed-mindedness of the public who treated his relationship with the marital robot as either a pathetic joke or a mortal sin. When he took the robot to church, no one would lift up the pews to allow it passage down the aisle, so they sat in the cry room at the back, the soundproof glass allowing the robot to motor around the carpet and operate its can opener as my father sang the responsorial psalms from his hymnal. When my father slowly walked down the center aisle to receive communion, the congregation greeted him with cold, judgmental stares 
and the priest's lower lip trembled as he placed the body of Christ in my father's open palms, barely containing his rage. Despite the social outcry, however, my father stood by his robot, and whenever I came home crying about the mean things the other children had said, he would say, Don't listen to them, son. They're just jealous because they don't have a pneumatic arm. I knew my father deeply cared for the robot, but I found it a poor substitute for my mother and secretly hoped she would reunite with our father, restoring our family to the Norman Rockwell idealism of our old posed Christmas card photos. During a break at the tennis court, down one set to skip, I asked her why she didn't want to live with my father anymore. It's complicated, sweetheart, she said, adjusting the strings on her racket. We were so young when we got married. Just kids, really. I thought that he'd grow, that he'd mature into a real man. But I was wrong. He's like Peter Pan. He never wants to grow up. I thought of my father wearing green tights and flying around chasing fairies, and I could see why my mother might not be attracted to that. But at the same time, it was easy to envision Skip with a hook, forcing me to walk the plank. Ever since the divorce, I had trouble sleeping, so I took to sitting on the staircase outside my room after midnight and watching the robot fondle the switch to the garbage disposal. The repetitive motions of the robot's pneumatic arm calmed me and distracted me from the millions of thoughts whirring inside my head, and after 15 minutes, I would crawl back in bed and fall asleep. One time, as I stared into the kitchen through the banister poles, I heard footsteps approach from the hallway, and when I turned to my left, I saw Isabel, poised on the landing in a baby doll t-shirt and a low-rise satin thong. Unable to move, I could only watch as she descended the staircase and peered between the poles, witnessing the adultery of my father's robot. For five minutes, we watched it flick the plastic switch, together, the arm jerking faster and faster until the garbage disposal was spurred into one continuous scream, the fine china almost shattering from excitement. Then, suddenly, the arm stopped and the robot fell over, exhausted. I turned to my left and Isabel was gone footsteps receding down the hallway. I glanced at my arm, and it was shaking, violently, like the robots. I tried to steady it between the banister poles, but it made an awful clatter that I feared would wake my father. I sighed, withdrew my arm, and stumbled down the stairs, making my way past the limp body of the robot to the garage. Just my luck, I thought. Another long night in the vice grip.
Once the other children at my school learned about my robot stepmother, they taunted me, mercilessly. When I walked through the halls, the popular girls would make herky-jerky motions with their arms, imitating the movements of a machine, and tease me with mock robotic voices. The older boys would throw me into garbage cans and the large St. Vincent de Paul donation box in the parking lot and say, what are you going to do? Go home and cry to your robot? The truth was, I would have liked to confide in the robot, have it console me, comfort me, but I was fairly certain it couldn't understand a thing, I said. I often tried to use the can opener connected to its body to open my Chef Boyardee SpaghettiOs, but when I asked it to hold still, it would completely ignore me and zip around the kitchen, knocking into walls and the refrigerator, and spitting out gumballs. When we first got the robot, my father said our family would be just like it used to be, but our initial family outings suggested otherwise. At movies, the robot would emit a piercing siren similar to a fire alarm, drowning out the dialogue, and at restaurants we had to secure it with heavy rope to the legs of our table, where it would terrorize the waitstaff. If the table was too lightweight, the robot would drag it across the carpet and would have to eat standing up, following our table as it moved about the room. As my father became more attached to the robot, I saw him less and less and my alone time with my parents was reduced to the short set breaks of my tennis matches. Rather than toughening me up, Skip's vicious overheads and double-fisted backhands at my chest destroyed my will to compete, and when he left to get his Gatorade, I would wrap my arms around my mother and beg her to take me home. There, there, she'd say, running her hands through my hair. You just need to work on your volley, that's all. Remember, elbows out. Skip thought my father had raised me to be soft, a wimp, and when I told him how the boys threw me in the trash, he resolved to make me into a real man, as he said. Instead of the jazz records I listened to at my father's house, Skip made me listen to Ted Nugent. Whereas I always watched the Discovery Channel at home, Skip allowed only ESPN and violent action movies. You see this, said Skip, pointing at Jean-Claude Van Damme, furiously kickboxing his enemies. This is what a real man watches. At the end of my first quarter of school, I was required to attend my parent-teacher conference, an event I dreaded both because of my poor grades and because it would be the first time Skip and my father would meet. For whatever reason, my mother insisted on bringing Skip to the conference so I prepared myself for an evening of humiliation and disaster. I went to a Catholic school, Our Lady Queen of Peace, where we had one teacher for all core subjects. So this year, my conference was with Mrs. Beiderbeck, the youngest of the teachers in her late 20s. I arrived at school with my mother and Skip, and when my father failed to show, we started the conference without him. Mrs. Milkowski, said Mrs. Beiderbeck, I'm concerned with your son's academic performance this quarter. He seems distracted in class, he does poorly on his exams, and he always hands his assignments in late, if at all. Can you think of anything that might contribute to this behavior? 
before she could respond, there was a loud crash outside the door, followed by what sounded like the whirring of a can opener. The door swung open, and my father entered the room, holding the pneumatic arm of the robot. Are you out of your mind? My mother shouted at my father. Why would you ever bring that machine to parent-teacher conferences? You brought your boyfriend, said my father. He's no more of a parent than my robot is. But Skip isn't made of metal, said my mother. And he doesn't have a gumball machine for a head. That's his problem, said my father. My teacher sat at her desk, mouth wide open, taking in the carnival that had become my life. I think I can see why Mickey might be struggling in school, she said, as calmly as possible. Let's all sit down and discuss some solutions to this problem. My father sat down in one of the children's desks, rubbing his lower back as he eased into the chair. He had obviously carried the robot up the stairs to the second floor, by himself. Mr. and Mrs. Milkowski, said my teacher, I realize this is a difficult situation for everyone, but sometimes it's hard for parents to see just how hard a divorce can be on a child, especially when their parents start seeing other people. Well, technically, Mickey's mother is the only one seeing another person, said Skip. His father is sleeping with a gumball machine. My father's face grew crimson red. It's not a machine, he said. It performs all marital functions. So how do you get off, exactly, said Skip with a sneer. The robotic arm or the coin slot? My father leapt out of his desk and grabbed Skip by his collar, dragging him to the floor. They rolled around the carpet, their arms flailing, their teeth gnashing, and my teacher tried to pull them apart, only to be set upon by the robot, spinning the blades of its can opener. My teacher ran into the arts and crafts closet and shut the door, screaming as the robot banged against her sanctuary with its seemingly possessed pneumatic arm. As the rest of the room descended into chaos, I looked at Mrs. Biderbeck's chair and saw my report card, which I retrieved and showed to my mother, who was sobbing uncontrollably in her child's desk. Look, Mom, I said. I didn't fail all of my classes. I got a C plus in social studies. teacher conference in my father's car, the robot strapped in the passenger seat beside him. 
I had never seen my father fight anyone, had never even heard him raise his voice. My mother was the emotional one in the family. He was always cool, calm, in control. But something snapped in that classroom. Something compelled him to violence, kicking and swinging like Jean-Claude Van Damme in the action movies. Was that what being a real man was all about? Pulling your rival from a child's desk and rolling around the carpet, swearing and grunting and spitting? I wasn't sure. They never taught us these things in Catholic school, the things we really should know. The educational system was failing me when I needed it the most. That night, Isabel stayed over and I fell asleep in the garage, forced to calm my twitching arm in the vice grip after I witnessed her suck a red, white, and blue popsicle at the top of the stairs. I awoke to the clatter of metal emanating from the kitchen, and upon entering the house, I discovered the source of the ungodly racket. It was my father, beating the marital robot with a frying pan. You whore, he shouted at the robot. You harlot. You were making love to the garbage disposal, weren't you? Weren't you? He landed a blow on the robot's head and smashed the polystyrene bubble, sitting gumballs streaming across the linoleum floor. My sister and Isabel ran into the kitchen, the brightly colored candy bouncing off their bare feet, and my father collapsed to his knees, throwing his arms around the battered robot and sobbing. Please forgive me, he said. I would never hurt you. I'm not a violent man. I have nothing but love in my heart. Please, don't leave me. Please accept my love. I instinctively walked over to my father and joined him in embracing the robot, and my sister and Isabel followed suit, enveloping the now lifeless machine with our bodies sparks dancing off its severed wires. As I hugged the robot, I could feel Isabel's warmth radiating off her heaving chest, the fragrance of her strawberry shampoo hijacking my senses, and, at that moment, caught between the cold steel of the Econobot and the heat of Isabel's body, it occurred to me that what I wanted more than anything else in the world was for her to touch me like the robot touched the garbage disposal. I would get a toggle switch installed somewhere on my body, my forehead, or my lower abdomen, and she would flick it off and on, off and on, and I would roar like the garbage disposal until the fine china fell from the cupboards. Tomorrow, when she appeared at our door with her bright pink duffel bag and semi-sheer capri pajamas, I would lift up my shirt and reveal the switch, and she would know exactly what to do. She would know that I was now a real man.